0: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best author interviews directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
0: Here's one of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio Archives. We hope you enjoy it and check our site on September 14th for our brand new show, PW Insider. I'm Mark Rotella.
2: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Today, we've got Amanda Stern in the office with us. Her new book is Little Panic. Hello, Amanda. So glad you could join us.
3: Well, hello. It's nice to be here.
0: So you've experienced panic disorder for for more than 20 years now, but but you only recently uh, started to get treatment. How did you go about doing it? What made you decide to do it?
3: Well, I actually started getting treatment when I was in my mid-20s. So I went 25 years without being diagnosed or treated for a panic disorder. Um, so what happens is when you have an untreated panic disorder, um, after a period of time, it branches off and it becomes other disorders. Um, so by the time I was 25, I, I had a whole host of other issues so i had social anxiety and i had um i basically had agoraphobia i couldn't leave the house um and i was deeply depressed mm. and um in psychology parlance mm-hmm. um depression is uh, comorbid with anxiety so it's a common thing that happens so i um was deeply depressed and at 25 i was i became suicidal and that is when um <clears throat> i Called my mom and I said I, I need help, and so she sent me to her therapist, mm-hmm. and I went to her therapist, and um, he asked me to explain my symptoms, and I told him, and he said, "How long has this been going on?" And I told him, and it, like in under three minutes, he he said, uh, "You have a panic disorder," and I just like ro, I levitated out of the seat. I was so like free. I felt so, like, validated.
0: So, and what were some of the the, the symptoms that you were experiencing, or what were your experiences?
3: So, initially, when I was young, the experience, so the the panic um, presents itself differently in young kids than it does in adults. And when I was little, it was really somatic. It was all in my body, and um, I was... I was like afraid to feel my body because it's where all the dread was and it felt like um basically like my entire body was filled with pins and needles Mm. and like hot pins and needles and um I was I don't know if I took like an actual full breath until I was 25 Mm -hmm. um so my my breathing was really shallow and I floated away all the time from my body I like felt like I was up floating away That's called depersonalization wow um and that happens to a lot of kids um wow. who have some form of trauma and um so that happened to me a lot and um yeah so it was just I was just filled with uh, dread but it was not just in my body it was around my body it was everywhere I moved it was my world was dread Mm. and it just was relentless and I had little pockets where I I was free of it but the the pockets were few and far between so and as an adult it um, what happens the difference is that um, you 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 know more you have more information about the world and what can happen to a person so when you're older when you have a panic attack you, you really think you're dying. You think you're having a heart attack. You think that you're, you're going to stop breathing. And so that's how it changes. Um, you, you become really aware of your own death in, in a profound way. Instead of fearing it, you're like, I am actively dying.
2: Mm-hmm. The childhood experiences you described sound absolutely awful. And I, I, have, a, I have trouble imagining that uh, a kid who told an adult about experiences like that wouldn't get at least some kind of support or suggestion that maybe this wasn't normal. Uh, what, what were your experiences at the time? Were you able to reach out for help? Did you just think it was normal because it was your life all the time?
3: No, I, I knew it wasn't normal. I knew that the people around me didn't feel the way I felt. And that people weren't as afraid to leave their mom alone Uh, my fear was that if i left my mom she would die or disappear or forget she had children and so i was constantly shadowing her and i would look out the window at night to make sure she wasn't leaving the house and like escaping um and, and i knew that my friends did not engage in this behavior Mm -hmm. um and i also would we would go to my father's house every other weekend which was uptown and my siblings would sort of joyfully uh, anticipate this departure and i didn't um every week was like starting from scratch and um i i was you know i called it the countdown and i had different um levels of countdown towards you know on the way to go in my father's house so i knew that it was something was up um but it was it felt shameful and i think it felt shameful because no one did anything even though i was constantly i mean i didn't have the emotional vocabulary you know i couldn't say i feel dread i i but what i could say is you know i'm i don't want to i can't go i you're gonna die something's gonna happen to you like my worries were pretty clear But, um, you know, I articulated my actual fears, but they seemed so unreasonable that um, the adults around me were like, that's not going to happen. And that wasn't helpful Mm -hmm. to me.
0: And you had, you write about one, well, a couple of incidents, but one that we just talked about in here, and this is with the, uh, and this ties into what you, you the, the anxiety you were already feeling, but this is something that happened in the real world, in the neighborhood in which you grew up, in yeah. Soho, and this is the kidnapping of a little boy, uh, Eton, which who's recently been in the papers. Tell us about that, and, and as you wrote about it in your book.
3: So, um, so... As I was saying, my fears were that my mom would die or disappear. And I was also um, really afraid that I would die or disappear. And I became sort of preoccupied with all the ways that people could disappear. And kidnapping was one of them. And um, when Eitan went missing, I, um, the, the police came to our house. Mm-hmm. And um, wow. they came to search the house. And I answered the door. And so I was shown a picture of him and I knew instantly that something really terrible had happened. And I, uh, I also instantly wanted to be the one to find him. Mm -hmm. And I knew that this meant that the world that I feared was, was actually the world I was living in Mm. and that, that the, the things that the adults were telling me weren't, uh, I didn't need to worry about were actually true, and I and I was right to worry about right. what I worried about. Right. So it validated everything that I feared, and it made me distrust adults even more. And mm. um, and I I I was I so one of the features of having anxiety is a is a hypersensitivity, and I over identify with pain with people who are suffering emotionally. And I have always been like that, and I will always be like that and i oh, i I over identified with aton separation from his parents, and I felt it in my own body and i I needed um, I needed to sort of repair that that um, that suffering in in me because I knew if I felt it then what he felt was just 85 times worse, and what his mom must have felt was 85 times worse. And I, I wanted to be the one to, to turn the world back into what I really wanted it to be, the one that the adults were telling me existed, but actually didn't.
2: Mm. What you're describing sounds so familiar to me as someone who's also dealt with anxieties that I was told were irrational Mm-hmm. And uh, that that would never ever happen. And in fact, what people meant was the odds of that happening are low. Right. And when it and when it did happen, I all I knew was that the never ever was a lie. Uh, right. So I, I i have such I have such feeling for that child. You. I, I was in my twenties when my worst fear came true, and yeah. um, I can't even imagine going through that as a kid.
3: Yeah, it was. It was. It was really, really painful. It was tough and you know it's funny it's not funny but I I had a really really hard childhood but not for the reasons that kids normally adults normally say they had a hard childhood Mm. for you know mine was was hard because for me being a child was awful Um, Mm. and not because I was you know severely abused or you know um, or anything along those lines but um, yeah, it was. I really hated being a child. It was. It was awful.
0: And you also had a close friend who who died of a brain tumor that you write about. Yeah, tell us about that.
3: So um, that's a spoiler alert. Uh, Melissa Scully, that is her actual real name, um, was my best friend, and she um, got sick very suddenly in third grade, and. Um, I, uh, was clearly very worried, but I was told she was not going to die that, you know, what she had, she couldn't die from. And it turned out she had a brain tumor and she did die and it happened. So the, the scenario was that I was being sent away for the first time for the summer, um, ever. I was going to sleepaway camp for the first time ever. And how old were you? uh i had just turned 9 okay and i i didn't i was not ready to do that i c- i couldn't psychologically do that and it was for 2 months oh so wow. i was just really beside myself and i had been living with the dread of departure for for months leading up to it and i was terrified that if i left home someone would die right and you know, everyone around me was like, "Not gonna happen, not gonna happen," and um, and I left. And while I was there, my grandfather died. And then when I came back, I asked my mom when I could see Melissa, and she told me then that my grandfather wasn't the only person to have died when I left home mm-hmm. for the first time, but Melissa had also died. And um, oh. it was it was wow. yeah, it was. It was a sort of otherworldly experience, you know, Um, and in some ways, it's going to sound sort of strange, but in some ways, death made a lot more sense to me than missing. And I didn't know, I, I, you know, kids don't really understand the concept of death, but I think I did. And, and I don't know why, but I did. And but I didn't understand the concept of missing. Where are you in the in-between here and not here? Like, where are you? And I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile that. So Aton's disappearance sort of clung to me, whereas Melissa's death was something that I could, I could actually um, face and um, learn to cope with.
0: We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Amanda Stern, author of Little Panic. And Amanda's been telling us about um, uh, her childhood and a couple of instances that, that really played into this, this panic disorder. But now, you, so we, we're talking now, you have this panic disorder, but you also decided to go into theater, something that is so public <laughs> yeah. and something that is that, that is anxiety producing in its own tell us about that what
3: made you decide to do that well i had this i mean i had this panic disorder but i also had this sort of inner conflict of wanting to be um like out in the world mm-hmm. and alive and on stage and making things and um I, I, and there so it was difficult for me to know how to do that because I was so terrified of it and yet I wanted it mm. and so I just kind of went for it and I there were, I did a lot of I, I I'm sure there's a psychological term for this but I don't know what it is but um I did a lot of like blocking everything out like I would um it's so hard to explain but it's almost like I got through it because I was in a coma. (laughs) You know, I I don't remember, um, how, I don't remember the exact ways that I coped, but I know that I did by pretending. I did a lot of pretending. And, um, and I would play a character in my head in order to, like, get to the theater company that I was in and, um... I, you know, I just really wanted this thing that was at odds with who I was inside. And I, I, and it's not all I was, you know, I was also someone who had a big personality and who was like constantly writing plays when they were Mm -hmm. little and putting on plays at home and making fun of everyone. And I like had a little stand up act, you know, I was like, I wanted to take my, my sketches on the road and, so, you know, I think that that sort of it didn't overpower the panic, but it it helped me uh, move in that direction and make some of the choices that I made. and And I also decided at one at twenty five when I had that um, significant sort of breakdown, I I realized it a real, real actual epiphany, and it was that. If I spent the rest of my life fearing all that I feared, I would never leave my house. I would never have a life. And that the only way to live this life successfully was to face every single fear I had mm. and get over it or at least get comfortable with it. Because the truth is you don't really get over it, but you get you get um, expert at it. Mm. And... um And so that's sort of what I did, and I think I didn't have the vocabulary for that when I was a teenager, but that's what I was doing, was I was moving towards my fears in order to get over them. And I happened to be, you know, um, like, talented enough to be a part of this group of kids in New York City who were writing plays and performing and... And all that.
0: So you had this, 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 uh, this hobby, this passion that was, it was kind of external, a performance one, a public one. But you also had one that's internal, and that was uh, writing. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about your writing. Was that, did that coincide with that epiphany as well when you were 25? How did that happen? And
3: Well, I've known that I wanted to be a writer since I was 10. And, um, I've been writing since I was really, really little. Mm-hmm. And, um, I grew up in this garden community, um, on McDougall Street between mm. Blaker and Houston. And, yeah,
0: Sounds idyllic. It was. <laughs> and,
3: um, anyway, I had a, a pool of 30 kids to cast from. So I was writing plays and casting them and producing them, directing them and like, you know, being a little bit bossy. And, um, and I just, I was producing I was like I love this so I was writing from a very young age and um, and I just I've never really not been writing ever and for me it's like being alive in the world and presenting my self in the world is to have a persona and is to sort of play the part of me in the world or the version of me that people expect, or the version of me that I'm used to playing, or you know what I mean? But when I'm writing, that's where I'm the deepest, most core um, person. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, there's no persona and i it's mm-hmm. it's there's no act there's no pretension I hope there's no um it's where i'm real it's it's where i'm who i am i don't i don't um i mean i I hope I'm sort of funny on the page, but i don't in life what I do is I disguise all my sadness and my pain with humor it's just what I do and um, and I do that in my writing to an extent but i Actually, let my sadness and my pain like actually be revealed more in my work than I do in person in the you know in the world.
2: When did you decide that the anxiety itself was something that you wanted to write about?
3: Uh, well, that one's tricky. So, um, I started writing a novel after my first novel came out, The Long Haul. Mm -hmm. Um, I, um, I just I started to write my second novel and I um found that my story about being IQ test I was IQ tested a lot as a kid in an effort to get diagnosed and um mm-hmm. and I had test anxiety, so that really didn't work out so well. And um so I started to write a lot about testing and I was like, "Oh, this aspect of my life is coming into this novel. Maybe I should start again and write a new novel, just all about testing." So I started a new novel, and it was all about testing. And then um, I was like, "Oh, maybe I should use my evaluations and my that I have the real ones from childhood." And so I put those in. I was like, "No, this has got to be a, just a new book." So I started another book. So like four books in, my my life story had infected everything that I was writing. By the fourth iteration. I was writing about my anxiety, and Mm. I thought, okay, you know what? I'm just going to go off to the side. I'm going to get this all out. I'm just going to get it all out, and then I'm going to write the book I was meant to write. But it kind of turned out the book I was meant to write was this book because I couldn't stop writing this book, and um, it just felt right. It was just this perfect synergy um, for me, and I, I just you know, I was terrified to do it and that is why I did it. So, um, yeah. So a
0: little, just nuts and bolts of publishing. So you had this, you were writing this at what point did you approach your, your agent or did you not have an I mean, you did have an agent at the time uh, from before. How, how did this, this come about, this book come about from your idea to, uh, acquisition and publication.
3: So I, at that time I actually was in between agents. Um, as well as boyfriends and I um, so I sent um, about a hundred pages of this book to four agents and said you want to get anxious with me so they uh, two of them passed and then two of them said yes so um, I met with them both and one of them was extremely hands-on and I really liked that and Need that, and um, so I was like, all right, let's work together so we did, and that's bill clegg and um, and he helped shape this book he helped he he is an editor it's remarkable, hmm. um, but he really uh, went through this book and and, and like combed the the oh, thick great. hair out of it and um, and then when it was ready ish i mean i don't I honestly don't think it was like as ready as it could have been when we sent it out um, but I don't think any writer thinks that, Yeah, anything is yeah, ready. Right, right so um, anyway so we sent it out and um, and the person who seemed to get it the most and seemed the most um, sort of uh, genuinely enthusiastic about it was Millicent Bennett at Grand Central Publishing and I I really liked her there was, she was she's not like me. She's exactly what I need in my life. She's grounded and focused and centered <laughs> and just like, you know, she is the same. When you talk to her, you know, in the morning on Monday, she's the same person as she is when you talk to her like late Sunday night. And I <laughs> knew that in my life.
0: Right. And
3: um, But she was also just incredibly smart about it and really... You know, she shaped my entire life. She literally gave structure to my entire life. And, um, and, you know, without her, I wouldn't have been able to do this. And without Bill, also. But so that's right. sort of how it went. And, um, and it was, you know, uh, it was really, really stressful. And you know, the the thing is like having anxiety about my anxiety book has been sort of this like hilarious, like meta, you
0: know, yeah. yeah,
3: experience. And, um, but that's what it is. I'm just like constantly panicking about my panic book and, you know, um, and I get sort of fixated on the next thing. Um, so that is, that's how that all went down. So
0: I know you previously, and most through your uh, very well-known happy ending reading series, which which seems to me a a marriage of your external and your internal, your theatrical and your literary lives. Um, I, you know, th- there must be inherent. In there, all kinds of sources of panic um, wh- what is that like for you both both as an artist but but also as someone who is reckoning with this in in her book
3: well you know it's it 's been difficult it, you know it 's been difficult and it 's been wonderful. Um, there are nights where i uh, where I have bombed. And, um, you know, people weren't laughing where I thought they should be laughing or, and, you know, and I'm always sort of reading the room, um, more critically when it comes to pe- how people are responding to me mm-hmm. than to everyone else. Um, so I'm, I'm always extra sort of critical of, yeah. of how I did or what I did, but it's not, you know, it's not about me. It's about the performers. And I want, I just want the shows to be, um, uh, I want there to be a connective tissue in each show. And I want that sort of have some organic life. Um, so that we are creating something in real time together. One, a one-off, a limited edition experience. And so I try and focus on, on that, but there, there definitely are times I had a panic attack on stage actually. And, um, um, so I had, I wanted to quit smoking and I went to, um, a psychiatrist and I was like, dude, I want to stop smoking. Hook me up <laughs> with this thing that you've got. I can't remember the uh, the name that they used. Uh, it's wellbutrin, but it had a different, they mm. were calling it something else. It was uh, the, the sort of marketing right. was skewed towards uh, you know cut cravings so He gave me that but he prescribed too high A dose so I had took it Like an hour before I went on stage and um I, I started to have a panic attack On stage and And I think oh. I honestly think This is this might have been the time when I started Being really open about my Anxiety was in that Moment and I just made a Choice and I, you know, I was in a room full of strangers and, but I was in this bar that I knew I felt safe. I felt at home and I was like, okay, hi, Mm. here's what's happening. I am having a panic attack and I'm going to talk myself through it and you're going to help me. And we did. And it was amazing. And, um, I think that that sort of started me off on being able to I mean, the, the worst thing that possibly ha- could happen, uh, except for death, um, and then, it, you know, who cares because you're dead, but um, happened, and everyone watched it, and I lived. I lived through it, and um, so experiences like that, I mean, that's extreme, but just living through the really difficult moments on stage mm-hmm. is glorious because you learn that your worst fear happened but the thing you thought would happen because your worst fear happened didn't happen and you learn from that experience that you're a more resilient than you realized you str- you can you know you can handle more than you thought um, but also that Feelings are not facts, you know. Your fears are not factual, mm. and um, so yeah. So it's been great in that in these sort of interesting ways, and I do definitely get something out of it performance wise. It it really is a perfect blend for me. Like you know, I was doing it once a month towards the end and, um, cause I stopped doing it. I'm doing one more event on the 27th where I'm going to be the reader, one of the readers with I,
0: Leslie Jameson yeah, and, uh, and Alexander right, Chi
3: and, right. um, Amanda Palmer is a musical guest and Todd Circio is the live artist, but I've never been the reader in my own series. So, and I have to take a risk, which is, you know, I, I, do you know about this? that I, uh, require all the authors to take a risk on stage. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, So,
3: so now I have to take a risk and, um, and now I'm like, why have I been doing this to these people? God, I'm awful. This is te- <laughs> I'm a terrible person. But, um, so that's going to be a different, I'm hosting it and reading in it. And that's going to be a, a new type of fear that I haven't had to face yet. Um, but I, I really, like, I just think the more open and honest and forthright people are about their worries and their concerns and their fears and their panics, like, the better off the world is going to be. And and the better off you're, you'll be. It's just, I, you you get better hmm. when you talk about it, you know. I don't know how or why, because I'm not a scientist or a psychologist, although I have pretended. Um but it just it happens.
0: So uh, we've been talking with Amanda Stern. You can find her book, Little Panic, in stores right now. Uh, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book. I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com.
1: And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: You can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. And don't forget, PW Insider launches on September 14th. Thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.